Are they the same fiction and nonfiction? Are they slightly different sports? Are, is there a code switching to go to do one or the other? Or is it just, it's just the same? It's not the same, except that for me, they are both literary endeavors. But, oh my God, when I'm writing nonfiction, first of all, I try my best not to write it. Because I know that I'm going to get into so much trouble. So it's like, uh, you know, I'm watching, I'm listening, I'm longing for someone else to say this thing that I want to say so that I don't have to say it. And then, you know, slowly I can feel myself sort of rocking with rage or anger or whatever. And then I stop eating, I stop sleeping. And then it becomes harder not to say it than to just say it, you know. And then... I write. That is the non-fiction. And the fiction is the exact opposite. It just, I just take my time. I just take years if I want. I'm completely leisurely and just uh, totally easy in my body when I write it. So they're totally different. Arundhati Roy is just one of the greatest writers of her generation. Her novels like the god of small things are beautiful her essays like the pandemic is a portal are powerful and incisive and locate her as an activist and an intellectual warrior her work has meant so much to me for so many years when i was doing college lectures there was a piece of her work that i would talk about in all of my lectures because it was an amazing breakdown of what modern racism looks like we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about writing we're going to talk about america we're going to talk about india i have been wanting to talk to her for so long this is such a thrill to talk to arundhati roy you'll get half of this episode for free for the whole thing which i highly recommend sign up at patreon.com slash show you'll get this whole episode all of our wednesday episodes the whole thing and our friday patreon exclusives for now it's the great author novelist essayist warrior arundhati roy on Torre show One of your sisters, in a way, Kamala Harris, is now poised to potentially become our next vice president. Um, I'm curious what you make of that. Well, uh, I think it's difficult for me, uh, you know, to make a lot of it because I don't really know uh, that much about her. But... uh, um, you know, I'm I'm a little kind of wary of this, like the Indian papers are full of, you know, trying to claim her as our own. At the same time, uh, busy putting millions of, uh, you know, Muslims who have lived here for generations off the National Register of Citizens. And so I'm not very comfortable with this claiming of an individual uh, you know, who, who's, who I don't know that much about and um, sort of just because her, you know, grandfather was in India or something, it doesn't make... Um, well, her mom. 
her, her mother, sorry, her mother was from here, but she's always claimed to be American and African-American. And that's lovely. I think that's how it should be, you know? So, um, well, but I just hope that, I just hope that whatever it takes, you know, to get Trump out of office, I hope she has it, you know? I hope she has it. And I also hope that, we all know, we all know, and we've we've seen it for a long time that, you know, we 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 mustn't end our politics in election campaigns, right. you know, because we want this man out, but that's not going to change the world, you know, because that world is structural and the critique has to be structural, you know, yeah. not based on individuals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in, in your book, Azadi. Um, which is so brilliant. You talk about the pandemic and in America, especially there's such a strong desire to return to normal. And you're one of those people who are like, this is an opportunity to move forward, right? To sort of like almost like a Noah flood moment to like wash away some of the old, horrible, destructive, oppressive things. And I'm not sure there's the political will in America because people are just like, let's just get back to normal. But for so many of us, it's like, no, let's not get back to normal. Let's push forward to something new. So, you know, um, there are, there are uh, obviously, when I said, I mean, I said that the pandemic is a portal and it was a long, uh, I mean, but not a very long essay, but an essay in which I spoke about how the coronavirus, whether it was in the US or whether it was in India, was working as a kind of X-ray that sort of exposed the bones of uh, of our attitudes, of our injustices, of our inequalities, economic, racist, casteist, classist, also of the plundering of this planet and all of that. And then I said, it's a portal. And there is a way of trying to use this moment to reimagine another way, because unless you first imagine that other way, you're not going to start moving towards it. But two or three things happened, you know, among my friends, I'd like, okay, man, it's not a fucking portal, okay? <laughs> because everyone is just like going on about it in this very kind of touchy-feely, hippie way with the portal and all of us are, you know, sort of wearing bell bottoms and platform heels and tripping through it. No, it's a fight, you know? And in that fight, What's happening is that governments are consolidating their positions on everything, using the opportunity of locked down human beings. And what I meant was all of us locked down have the opportunity to think and to reimagine our solidarities, to stop siloizing ourselves in the ways that capitalism has taught us to, you know, because uh, just like, um, I mean, the caste system in India, for example, of course, it's a feudal system. It's a system that began long before capitalism existed, but it's the perfect vehicle for capitalism because it divides everyone, it pits everyone against each other. And that is the same thing that uh, they have tried in, in the U.S. Uh, with race and to co-opt 
everything that is a structural critique of an economy, even to co-opt the memory of, uh, say, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who, when he made the connections between capitalism, imperialism, racism, Vietnam, he was killed. And then his memory was even too toxic for them. So they started corporatizing it and holding lectures about, you know, defense issues in his name, you know, the list of companies that uh, were involved and are involved in confecting the memory of it. So when I say it's a portal, I mean uh, that, you know, of course I know that data is being consolidated, lines are being hardened in government and corporate minds. But what about us, you know? That's what I meant when I said it's a portal. It's time for us at least not to say, let's go back to normality. Because normality is wonderful for certain people, but intolerable for most of the world now. Well, in what ways would you like to see all of us reshape the world, given this opportunity (laughs) to do so? Is that a fair question? (laughs) Uh, Well... You know, I think I've spent something like 20 years uh, writing about those ways, you know. So I would be, uh, it would be hard for me to compress it into some little capsule that is easy for audiences to swallow. But I think if I were to speak about it just in conceptual terms, you know, for example, um one of the one of the things i wrote for which i i was i mean you know i took a lot of flack was in 2010 i went into the forests of central india where there's this there's this guerrilla war unfolding and the battle lines to people in the television studios are between maoist terrorists and you know uh, the the government of India, but I went into the forest and I walked with those comrades for 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 a few weeks, and the real story is that that is an indigenous people's homeland, and uh, the government has handed it over to mining corporations as governments have done over the centuries, and the battle to hold on to that that homeland is a bloody one. You know, it's not a Gandhian one. But what I when I wrote that, I, I talked about an imagination where you have to redefine what you mean by civilization. What do you mean by progress? What do you mean by happiness? And the example that I gave was that in those areas, you have these flat-topped mountains, which are always the sign of the presence of bauxite. Bauxite is the mineral that goes into the making of aluminum, which is like important for every industry, especially the weapons industry, but so many things. So the bauxite was what these corporates were after. But if you speak to the people in that area, they'll tell you that those bauxite mountains, those flat-top bauxite mountains, bauxite is a porous rock. And bauxite is a water tank. When it rains, 
that bauxite is it holds the water in the mountain and then it irrigates the plains for as far as the eye can see. So for people there, they valued the bauxite when it was in the mountain. But for the corporates, for the economy, for the government, for the military industrial complex, that bauxite was only worth anything outside of the mountain. You know, And I said, the imagination that we have to get to is when we are able to leave the bauxite in the mountain and to know that you take it out and not just the people there, of course, those people will suffer immediately, but even those who take it out will perish eventually. So I would say that, can you leave the bauxite in the mountain, literally and metaphorically? Mm, mm. One of the sentences that jumped out at me, you say, um, the U.S. government perfectly fits its own definition of a rogue state. And it... it encapsulates the hypocrisy of America, the danger to itself and to the world of current America, um, the sort of way that America functions almost as like a, a bratty uh, teenager who you like has a lot of money. So, you know, it can do what it wants to do and it sort of keeps stepping all over other people and getting away with this. And, um, you know, you think a lot about if America wasn't America, would America want to invade America to like, you guys, you guys are in a lot of trouble. You need our help. Yeah. You know, we need to reinstall democracy into America. Uh, just what do you think? Well, I mean, you know, I have never really lived in America or spent great a great deal of time there, but no one needs to, you know, because it's the empire. So we, we know a lot about it without living yeah. there. And uh, what I, uh, while I uh, follow what's going on now, um, you know, there are, there are such um, chilling similarities and, and, of course, great differences between the U.S. and India. But what I see, which really seems worrying to me, is that, you know, while all of us were initially exhilarated by the protests, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, I see that uh, Trump and his people are using it to, to, to polarize on the other side mm -hmm. right now. And we know that the people, those people are the ones with the guns. They are the ones with the weapons. They are the people who, who want the NRA to keep going. And so as you're hurtling towards this election, it seems to me that if it's a close call either way, it's almost going to be civil war or something. You know, there is going to be people who, if it's like a clean sweep by one side or the other, then maybe things will be okay. But otherwise, there's going to be an election that is contested in terms of uh, its results. And even if the results are you know, not contested, they may not be accepted. And I don't know how, uh, you know, it's it's a bit like how when the anti-citizenship law protests happened here, Muslims who are like 10 or 15% of the population, which is very many millions, were of course supported by many, many non-Muslims who are 
you know, against this idea of the Hindu nation and the right-wing nation, but the protests were led by the Muslims and especially by Muslim women. And then the minute Corona happened, it was just completely overturned with these 400 television channels going on about Corona Jihad, Muslims are human bombs. And they just undid the solidarity in such ugly ways. Was, uh, you know, so, so, so when you see even what happened in the Arab Spring, in the Egyptian revolution, all of these, you know, great movements, but there was just this judo move and they were turned over. So it's a moment of, of tension. What is happening in the US, uh, I think all of us are watching with uh, trepidation. I mean, we're here watching with trepidation. I think we have reached a situation oh, where yeah. um, there's a lack of trust of the mechanism of voting on both sides. Yeah. So no matter who wins, there will be 40% of the country that feels like the election wasn't fair. It was, you know, he's, Trump has told his mm. people the election is rigged, and yet we see him trying to rig it. So if he wins, it's exactly. because he rigged it. Exactly. And if he doesn't, yeah. it's because I already told yeah. you it was rigged. So then you have a complete loss of faith in the institution of democracy. Exactly. And here, you know, you wonder, I wonder whether I would have been happier if I could say that 40% would stand up and fight against the uh, Hindu right, but they will not, you know. So you have a situation where, uh, you know, it's almost like in another sense, democracy has ended because we have uh, what is what I think of as a one-party democracy, which is an oxymoron, you know, and the other parties have been decimated. Uh, this party has all the money, all the data. It has the cunning with which to win elections, but it hasn't got the brains with which to run this continent. So yesterday's papers, minus, minus 23.9 is the GDP. I, when you write about Trump's visit to India, I can feel the disgust in your pen. I can feel the anger. Um, and, and yet he seemed to only come because a million people would be there to listen to him and cheer for him. And um, Not just, only he came, he came uh, at the time when the coronavirus was, was 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 making inroads, you know, and this government did nothing because they wanted, you know, thousands of people to come. And so in the middle of this pandemic, you had these tens of thousands or million or whatever the people were in uh, assembled to listen to him in Gujarat. And then Gujarat became uh, a coronavirus mega hotspot. But of course, they were blaming the Muslims for spreading it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it just... And I, then I he know. told us, then Trump told us that we play cricket and, you know, he told us all the festivals that we celebrate. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just his, his inability to see other people's humanity is extraordinary. 
Yeah, but it's, but it's you know, I mean, in India, I can't say that um, you know we are any more human than anyone else because, uh, as you read, you know, like while he was here in Delhi, people were being beat into death on the streets. Young Muslim men who were dying uh, were being forced to sing the national anthem. And, uh, you know, now there are so many reports coming out about how people taunted them and women, you know, taking off their pants and saying, you want Azadi, here it is. Mm. And, you know, so the, the, the lack of humanity here, you know, people are being lynched and those videos are being put, were being put up on, on YouTube and liked and, you know, supported. So I think... Um, you know, I can't really say that there's any moral superiority here. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First.
Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Um, I mean, you know, y- your ideas are really powerful, um, and the ways that you express them are quite often really beautiful or really sharp or, you know, and, and I find myself getting equally excited about your fiction and your nonfiction. There's a really interesting discussion within the book about different people in the world telling you, hey, you need to focus on your fiction and others saying, hey, fic- nonfiction is what's important. You know, this other stuff is just playtime and you resolve it. Um, and I think it's really interesting that, you know, you, you stake at this ground where you're like, I need both things to be a whole person and a whole thinker in the world. And so many of us think of ourselves mastering one side or the other, but you see them as two parts of the whole you. Yeah, well, you know, I uh, when I was very young, I, I, I used to always think, why does everyone have to have a profession? You know, it seemed like some kind of odd way of growing to me, you know, because... I, I studied architecture and urban planning. I worked in cinema. Then I wrote a novel. But I, for me, there wasn't any great difference in all of these things because I was constantly looking at myself as a person who lives in this world, who's trying to understand it and express it with, with every kind of tool that I might have, you know, whether it's in a screenplay, whether it's in a novel, whether it's in a... Uh, a, a nonfiction essay, whatever, it doesn't matter. What is the best way of doing it, you know? And at the time when The God of Small Things came out, you know, at that time, English publishing in India was really, uh, you know, you just had this one publisher, some, it was Penguin, but it was such a small outfit and all the books were orange and all the text was crooked and I was like no thanks you know I can't do this because I also am a student of design but uh, when I when I wrote when that book came out and you know obviously it won this big prize and I was so terrified of the way in which people wanted to shape me corporatize me replicate me make me replicate myself you know fame is a form of domestication that's worse than marriage. It's like, please, you know, just let me be. Let me make my mistakes. Let me write a worst seller, whatever. But I was being celebrated. And for many reasons, you know, India was just coming into its own as this free market economy. And then they did these nuclear tests. And I, and the Hindu right came to power, like within months. And, and I was very much a part of that you know showpiece and i had to step off the pedestal and say sorry but it ain't me babe you know so then it went into this whole other realm and to me as a writer nothing nothing do i crave more than understanding you know, because all of us are thrown these bones, which we're supposed to just chew, like whether it's from the resistance, whether it's from the oppressors, whether it's from our parents, you know, there's this pressure for you to just accept and inhabit this little shape that you're given. But as a writer to understand, 
What does a big dam do? How does this public language change? What goes on in the forest with the comrades and, and half of their army are women, you know, fighting? Why are they fighting? So it's just like the curiosity that take, t- took me into all these places and deepened my understanding. And therefore, all of it is a part of me, you know, all of it. And I don't have this desire to write, you know, like 500 books and win 79 prize. It's not that. It's just how can you live while you're alive? You know, how can you, uh, how can you really make texture from stories? Are, are they the same fiction and nonfiction? Are they slightly different sports? Are, is there a code switching to go to do one or the other? Or is it just, it's just the same? As a, as a, as a, as a writer, as a stylist, as a person who's trying no, to express? No, no. It's, it's not the same, except that for me, they are both literary endeavors. But, oh my God, when I'm writing nonfiction, and this is not true for every writer of nonfiction, the kind of nonfiction I write I'm talking about. It's like, uh, I first of all, I try my best not to write it because I know that I'm going to get into so much trouble. So it's like, uh, you know, I'm watching, I'm listening, I'm longing for someone else to say this thing that I want to say so that I don't have to say it. And then, you know, slowly I can feel myself sort of rocking with rage or anger or whatever. And then I stop eating, I stop sleeping. And then it becomes harder not to say it than to just say it, you know. And then I write. That is the nonfiction. And the fiction is the exact opposite. It just, I just take my time. I just take years if I want. I'm completely leisurely and just uh, totally easy in my body when I write it. So they're totally different. And with fiction, you're just trying to tell a story. It's not about I have an idea that I want you to understand. Just like, here's here's a beautiful story. Here's a great character. Oh, uh, it's more than that. I think it's also very experimental. You know, like for me, the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, it was like, can a novel be a city? You know, can can it be as complicated as a city? Can it be broken and redesigned? Can we make the reader go down these little parts and sit and smoke with the cobbler and say, hey, brother, where have you come from? And, you know, what's your story? And can we just stop saying this is the cobbler, but ha- can he have a name? And can can I not be scared of the reader's confusions? Because you got to live in the city you got to get lost. You've got to be a bit scared. You got to, you can't just drive down the highways. So it was, it was like, uh, as a person who studied architecture, it was very important for me, the structure of that book. You know, can it be like s- sort of complicated and yet designed, you know? And so the form itself was important. And then Telling a story, it's not even like I know the story when I start writing it. But the characters, I need to know them so well that they I can tell you 
that they are still sitting around, you know, behind the screen and sort of saying, what the hell are you saying about us? So I like the fact that I keep getting letters from prisons asking about the characters in utmost happiness. And, you know, someone asked me, like, now today, you know, where do we stand when we fight? And I said, because utmost happiness, uh, eventually it's about graveyards and that graveyard in Delhi where Anjum runs a guest house where each room has a tomb and you know the the people that live in that guest house that die in that guest house that are buried in that guest house in that graveyard that are married in that graveyard to me that's what does eating healthy mean to you whatever your eating goals Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash thrivemarket.com slash On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The springboard of where we need to stage our fight from, because we are in a kind of graveyard now. You know, the oceans are full of masks and, Mm. you know, everything's running out. And here Anjum has her little garden and she's, you know, preparing. She has a swimming pool without any water that she's very proud of because, you know, Rich people have swimming pools with water, but at least we have a swimming pool without water. (laughs) Before I did um, my first novel, I did my own little sort of urban planning study and like read Jane Jacobs just to try to, because I thought it might inform. And I think it did inform what I was trying to do in a valuable way and like Rem Coolhouse's work. And I wonder... Uh, the value of studying urban planning and the value of studying architecture for a writer and how you've been able to bring the things that you learn from those disciplines into your fiction and your nonfiction? Well, you know, I uh, can't imagine anything that I would have liked to study more than architecture in order to be a writer. But The good thing was that it was a very anarchic education because, you know, it was a 
it was <laughs> i don't know i learned as much outside the classroom as much in 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 rather crazy arguments with with my professors you know i had left home when i was 17 so i was living in some really peculiar place and um you know so knowing coming to know the city from the point of view of someone who really had no protection in the city and who really had not very much respect for what was being formally taught as the way to build or design you know so all of it really mattered to me and uh, in fact the first uh, screenplay that i wrote was for a feature film about students in architecture school uh, you know where all the students are just like people have failed their fifth year four times and are now selling chickens and rabbits from their room and everyone is stoned and you know so the whole education was pretty bizarre but uh when i came to my final year i said to my professors that i don't really want to design a building for my thesis i want to do a thesis on the post colonial city of delhi how did it come to be what it is what it does to those who live in it how all the institutions that urban planning teaches you you know whether it's land use or sewage or whatever it is excludes the poor it excludes a majority of the citizens and people are shitting on the sewage system as i said in my thesis and they were not amused i said they're shitting on top of the sewage system so in fact in utmost happiness there's a there's a moment where one of the characters is looking out of her window at dawn and she sees this group of women who are you know road workers and they're standing around this open manhole you know with their pickaxes and all that and all of them are protecting this little boy who's basically shitting straight into the manhole like it's you know saying he's making this direct deposit and maybe it's their first foothold in the city because even the sewage system was not for them you know they have nothing in the city so to me these kinds of things uh, i mean the whole of utmost happiness is really about the city and uh, uh, and you know the renovation of it the old city of delhi the new city the aspirations of being the superpower uh, so it's it's very much a novel that could only have come out of out of this uh, this fascination for for cities although the god of small things of course comes from having never been to a city i mean when i i grew up in that little village so i i remember when i came to delhi by train i'd never been to a big city before and i had no idea of the scale so i went to um Uh, uh, an auto rickshaw you know one of the three wheelers or cabs or something and i said can you take me to mrs joseph's house like <laughs> what who the fuck is that i said my mother's sister <laughs> so she is like no this is delhi you know this is not some village yeah um let me ask something dangerous uh and feel free to tell me like you know to bugger off 
Can you tell us anything about the next novel? Oh, I wish, but I haven't. Uh, you know, I am fighting the this kind of pressure to to start doing something because I'm trying to understand what's going on, right? I mean, we can't act as if nothing's going on. I mean, that is just the same. And we'll this. I, I think I'm just still trying to understand, and I'm feeling extremely trapped because because although uh, I haven't properly been locked down, you know, I had a media card and I have been writing stuff and all that, but I. I have. I, I'm not free to travel to go to the places that I would like to go and listen and talk and think and see, you know. And so I'm feeling very thwarted right now. Very thwarted. So, uh, you know, I'm waiting to to be let out. For more from me and Arundhati, join us over at patreon.com slash show. Thanks so much to Arundhati for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. And thank you to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Gerville Calais, Michelle, Brenda Cox, Kathy F., and Dr. Kina Murphy. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. And check out my newsletter, Black Minds Matter. Go to blackmindsmatter.substack.com. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. Mm-hmm.